Sounds like it's working. All right. Somebody would grab those doors for me back there, please. We're in Genesis 18 tonight, and uh, we're going to start with prayer for um, the webs. Jeremy and Marie uh, are expecting, and if the baby were to come right now, the baby wouldn't likely wouldn't survive. So um, she'd be about a pound translucent skin just she just wouldn't make it and uh, she needs another couple weeks in the oven and it's very very fragile right now so um, Marie's health is in in jeopardy the baby's health health is obviously in jeopardy so they're having to sort through some questions right now about do we revive the baby some really weird questions just kind of not the kind of things that that people we have to deal with very often so uh, we want to lift them up in prayer and obviously pray for little Phoebe. They've already named her Phoebe and uh, pray for her um, strength and um, development. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we're thankful for uh, trouble because we recognize in, a, in difficulty that Christ is revealed and that your people are um, have a chance to be salty and bright and aromatic and... Lord, while we appreciate that opportunity, we pray for your fame and renown as a result of the protection of this little life and the delivery of this baby, intact and healthy. Lord, we pray for uh, Marie, that she will just have a peace that passes understanding and that she will trust you as a um, physician and author, sustainer and um, sovereign. And we pray for Jeremy also, that Jeremy's faith will be um, either either established or grown through this. And um, we pray that you'll be glorified through this whole thing. We beg for the life of this little girl. Uh, we pray these things tonight in Christ's name. We also pray tonight for this study, Lord, that you'll just open your word to your people and that we'll feast and uh, that we'll walk away different as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. A couple of thoughts, just kind of introductory to uh, Genesis 18. Is uh, the last chapter, Abraham was charged with walking blamelessly before the Lord. And this chapter is going to be kind of a chance for us to see how he's going to do with that. And um, some things you're going to see here in this chapter, you're going to see humility. Just really at its best. Uh, you're going to see hospitality. Like the best most expeditious, speedy hospitality you've ever seen in your life. And you're also going to see some pretty beautiful, sweet compassion all in one chapter from this uh, faithful Abraham. So let's just climb right into it. What I'd like to do is read the whole thing, just kind of in keeping with usual, taking the full sweep of it by reading it all together and then go back and look at it in uh, three, four chunks. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, 
as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his, up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant, so they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of, fl- of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for God? Thinking about that as we're praying for Phoebe, is anything too hard for God? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away that, the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if, they find, if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, let's start with the first little chunk of this, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, 
And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, the setting for this chapter is, at least initially, is Abraham sitting in, in the shade of his tent. This would be a common place to sit, apparently, for someone who's kind of a tent liver. Uh, you're not going to go hanging out in the middle of the day in the Middle East. Anybody that's ever spent any time over there, you know that that is a hot, miserable time of day. So he's sitting at the entrance to the tent, and this is kind of a welcoming place for travelers. Just if, if, you're, if your Bible is like mine, then you have chapter 19 on that facing page. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. That's an important contrast that you're going to see, a contrast between Abraham and between Lot. And they're living in two different contexts. Abraham's sitting at the tent of a, a sojourner's tent, living like he's leaving, living for the city to come. And then Lot's sitting in the, the gate of his wicked city. And there's going to be a contrast between these two men as these two chapters develop. But here he sits at the gate or the, the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. If you were traveling during that period of day, you would imagine that you would want to be looking for some shelter and for some rest and maybe some sort of refreshment. So while Abraham is resting during this time, the heat doesn't seem to diminish his pursuit of being hospitable to these visitors. There's some things that he does, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but these three men show up. Let's talk about those three men. Any thoughts on who these might be, how this, this might flesh out, who these three men might be? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's right on the money. The way this story develops, it looks like the Lord is one of them. And by the beginning of chapter 19, there's two angels that are going off to Sodom, and the Lord is still talking with Abram or Abraham by this point. Okay, so the Lord shows up in human form. How can the glory that could consume Moses show up in human form? I guess the same way he showed up in Bethlehem. I don't know how he did it, but in some way the Lord has shown up here in human form where it's not his glory is not consuming uh, Abraham. So these three guys are kind of a mixture of angel and the Lord. And um, what are, uh, let's talk about Abraham for a minute. What kind of host do you think Abraham is? What are some observations that you can see from that little section? Generous? Okay, good. Quick, Quick. yeah, he's like Speedy Gonzalez running around everywhere. Everything he's doing is like a run. Quick, do this. Quick, do that. Make this quick. He races off to, to mobilize one person or another. I think the word that really hit me is the word attentive. He is the attentive waiter in this situation. Christy and I like to go eat at Gloria's in uh, Rockwall. 
And one of the best things about Gloria is the service. Am I ever been to Gloria's? Man, it's incredible. You know, you need something, and it's like they're reading your mind, and there it is. That's kind of the picture here. They're hustling around to take care of their, uh, their people. And then the other thing that we observed, or that I observed in him, is not, on a, not only attentive hospitality, but humble hospitality. What does he do physically whenever these, these visitors show up? Now, one of, one of them is the Lord, which probably has a lot to do with the posture that he takes. What do you see there? He gets on his face. Yeah, there's an extreme humility here. But even just in, um, after the food has been served, he's standing by, kind of like that good waiter, watching them, how can I serve you? Is there any, going to be anything that you need over the course of this meal? So there's kind of a mixture here of attentiveness and humility. And as, as I considered those two ingredients of his hospitality, I realized those probably go together. That the humble will be attentive. And that the attentive, in their attention to others, they're placing the needs of another above themselves. And you've got to be humble to do that. So show me someone who's attentive, and I'm going to show you a pretty sweet, attractive humility. Show me someone who's humble, and you're going to see a pretty notable, noteworthy attentiveness. Okay? Now, let me, I need to ask this. Do you recognize Jesus in these passages at all? And if so, how? Now, apart from the Lord visiting them, I'm talking about Jesus in the story. If, if our Old Testament stories are more than just stories, but they're the tutor that leads us to Christ, if they're this big arrow that says, see, here's how you can recognize him, do you see anything here that kind of points to a Christ-like? Yeah. I mean, there's, he's, the, he's the alpha slave. He's not the alpha slave because we're going to reserve that for Christ. But he's made maybe the beta slave, you know, or gamma slave. He's on down the alphabet a little ways with alpha being reserved for our Lord. But he's operating like a slave. And it's pretty cool to see. This is God's chosen man in this case. And he's on his knees. I don't know that he's physically washing the feet. We don't know that. But he's employing his people and he's tending to those sort of details. And as he's standing by while they're eating, you're getting the picture that he is taking a personal vested interest in tending to them almost like a bond servant, almost like a do-loss. Morris. Very good. It was the tender one. Great point. That's right, like top sirloin. He didn't, didn't save the, he didn't give mac, uh, mac and cheese when he had backstrap in the, in the freezer. He went and pulled out the backstrap, the choice cut, said, let's fry up some backstrap. And, and he, he followed, it, followed it up with uh, goat's milk, which apparently goat's milk at this time was pretty, I mean, it's a delicacy. It may still be a delicacy over there. It's over there, but something that was apparently good for digestion. It's a sweet commodity. Okay, let's pick up in verse 9. So these three, the Lord and these two angels, they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent, looking at Red Book, I guess. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. She's tuned in to what's going on out there. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. This is commentary from the narrator. 
the way, so we're getting taking in the details of what she might be thinking as she's hearing what these visitors are saying out there. It says, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, this, it says they asked where Sarah was. I can't help but wonder if that was the Lord spe- specifically asking where Sarah is. And do you have, what are your thoughts on whether he knew where she was? You think, you think he knew? <laughs> it's kind of like that question whenever Adam and Eve sinned and God comes looking for them in the cool of the day and, Adam, where are you? You think he doesn't know where Adam is? <laughs> he, knows, he knows exactly where he is. And he, he's almost in some ways, by asking where she is, it's sort of like calling her attention to, we're about to talk about her. So if she's in the tent, she's going, wait, I just heard my name. <laughs> What's going on? They're about to say something that has some to me, something to do with me. And the Lord's, um, then the Lord's return and him saying that I'm going to return to you about this time this next year suggests that he alone is the only one who can make the barren fertile. He said, I'm going to show up because I'm the one that's the author of life. I'm the only one that can call Lazarus forth from death to life. I'm the only one that can call the, the barren womb from barrenness to fertility. This where it says that she's not gone, the, or where, um, where's the phrase? She has ceased... The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. It's kind of a picture that she's gone through menopause. She, she doesn't have, you know, as you're looking at it, the eyes are saying, and circumstances, and the natural saying, this isn't possible. <laughs> I mean, she's not going to happen. It's too late now, God. I guess you missed it. I know you've been promising us for a long time, but I guess you missed out. I guess maybe Ishmael is our man. I know. Hey. Mm-hmm. They they could have been. Right. Right. I don't know that there was an introduction. The way this story unfolds, it doesn't look like there was. But there may have been. There may. Right, right. There's, there's, well, he's about to demonstrate that he knows some things that not the average dude knows. Yes, and her attention as she's hearing his name. Now, he could have said, my wife Sarah's in there fixing some bread. And then they asked later, okay, where's Sarah? But what, what is about to unfold here, um, well, really what unfolded in this little section that we read indicates that they have some pretty unique, this Lord has some pretty unique knowledge. She's listening in, as you would expect that she would be, and she's probably thinking to herself, how do they know my name, and what are they about to say to me? So she's got her ear to the, to the uh, tent wall. 
And then, as she, I'm sure as she's hearing this thing unfold, she's heard this over and over again that you're going to have a baby. Okay, just put, put yourself in her shoes. Remember, these are real people. So you've heard this over and over again that you're going to have a baby. And from all physical indications, she's just not able. So in other words, she's likely gone through menopause. It's just not feasible and it's not possible. So she laughed to herself. And then the Lord, knowing and hearing all thoughts, asked Abraham why she laughed. And then he reminds Abraham and Sarah that God can do all things. Nothing's impossible for God. So this is like... You know, how many, how many opportunities has God had to teach Abraham and Sarah that he's sovereign? We have this whole Bible that's teaching us. God's sovereign. God's powerful. So we look back on these early lessons and we go, well, why, why wouldn't they know this by now? This is one of the early lessons on, hey, I'm in control of all of this. I'm powerful. I'm sovereign. I can do all things. And I'm going to let your wife get really, really old. I'm going to let Lazarus get really, really dead. So then I can show up that I'm sovereign. And I'm Lord over all this. So that seems to be what's going on here. And he's given them sovereign, a, cl- a class on sovereignty, Sovereignty 101. And he says, like I said, Sarah will have a son. Okay? And then revealing the humanity even of the chosen and the elect. <laughs> Sarah uh, denies that she laughed out of fear. And I was just thinking about her fear. I think I'd probably be pretty afraid too. If somebody's reading my mind through a tent wall, you know, and I see my husband hustling around to tend to them. I'm having to think like a wife. I'm imagining I'd be kind of startled and afraid. It doesn't excuse what she's done, but you can understand why she could have been afraid. And then lastly, go ahead. That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe at that point she did. Maybe that's where the fear came from. Yeah, well, that's a good point, and I, that's something I'm going to deal with later. That, right, exactly, and and God doesn't ignore it. Notice what what He says next. He says, "No, you did laugh." So, you know, I, I'm going to make some comments later on um, Sunday morning. Just some thoughts from Sunday morning, but this is an appropriate kind of uh, segue to at least comment on one thing. My comments at the beginning of the sermon on Sunday morning were as much about giving as they were about lying. You know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, if you're going to be a terminal non-giver, a faithless, you know, participant in this people, that, that's one thing. But then to take the covenant, which is a covenant between God's people and a covenant between God's people and God, and say, oh man, it's just a piece of paper. Because that's essentially what we're doing. So membership renewal, when we renew our membership and our commitment to that co- or to God through that covenant, that, that's like a, a, a lie renewal <laughs> for about 60% of the body. So that was really kind of where a lot of that frustration came from. Like, how could we possibly do this? And later on, I'm going to deal with the issue of righteousness and justice and how God calls his people to pursue righteousness and to love justice. So we'll talk about that later, but this is, you know, lying is no, lying before the living God is no issue. He says, no, you did laugh, and I want you to know that you did, because <laughs> that's when grace shows up, when the law comes in and says, okay, sin was there all along, 
But with the law, I'm going to give shape to it. That's what Romans tell us, tells us that the law was. The law didn't introduce sin. Law just gave shape to it. It was this invisible thing that was already there. And the law came in and said, okay, here's, here's the shape of this sin. Here's the shape of this sin. And that's why we embrace the law because then we go, thank you for the law because it helps me know that I'm guilty. Because <laughs> apart from knowing that I'm guilty, who needs grace? But it's when you go, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm guilty. No one's righteous. No, not one. I stand next to the law and I, yes, I did laugh. And I wronged the living God. And I need, I need a Jesus. <laughs> I need a mediator. I need someone to stand between me and God. That's what Job said. When Job questioned God, at one point in the book of Job, he says, if only someone could stand between me and God and put, my hand, put their hand on my shoulder and on his shoulder. And he was begging for Jesus. So that's why it's good to know. It's not fun to hear. <laughs> I don't expect she went, oh, thank you for reminding me that I laughed thank you for calling me out no but you did laugh I don't expect she went oh thanks Whew, yeah I almost missed that it, it, it's no fun being called out but the joy on the other side of it is going grace Jesus <laughs> cross need <laughs> must cling to you know all those simple thoughts that you think when you're freaking out so Freaking out is a good thing. Okay? All right, let's go to verse 16. <clears throat> you know, just one thought that I put in my notes. Recognition of sin is the first step to repentance. You can't repent from something that you're not aware of. So that's why we should read our Old Testaments. The New Testament, the Christian that just carries around the New Testament, that the Old Testament is just kind of a collection of, you know, old stories that are kind of great to teach the kids. But I've moved on. to I've graduated. You miss out on this four-fifths of a book that says, man, no, we've fallen short, and we need a Jesus. So that's when we enjoy the, the rec recognition is the first step to repentance. Okay, Verse 16, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done together, or done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Okay, verse 17. The Lord is, uh, you almost hear him kind of, uh, he's revealing this thought process that he's going through, not thinking like a man, but he's revealing his journey that, or his his the mind there that's, that's behind these thoughts. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In other words, no, I'm not going to. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Seeing as how he's going to be the father, progeny of, or the, the father of this people that I'm going to create, 
I can't possibly keep him from the details, from the story. So this question that he's asking, he's answering it in the way that it unfolds, that of course he can't. Here's a couple of passages to look up. Just keep your finger in Genesis and look over at Amos chapter 3. Verse 7, I'll give you a page number when I get there. On, in your pew Bible, it's on page 765. <clears throat> Amos chapter 3, verse 7. This section here is, I think, the nectar of this chapter. I mean, this, this section that we're going to engage just in the next few minutes is where it just should just blow you away. And it's going to be one of those things where you go, I don't have to think about this. And that's good. To actually think about it after a study, you know, where you go home and you read it, and you're like, okay, let me gnaw on this some more. This will be one of those kind of sections. But it's gnawable. It's worthy of gnaw. Okay, so it'll be worth, worth the gnawing. Okay, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. So in some ways, as he's revealing this to, uh, you can turn back to Genesis. So in some ways, as he's revealing this to Abraham, Abraham is kind of acting like a prophet in that he's getting this knowledge about the way the rest of the story goes. God is showing that he does, he's not the sort of God that keeps his people in the dark. Now, you may remember as the first few chapters of Genesis unfolded and we were comparing the, uh, the, our biblical story to the Gilgamesh epic and some of these other stories of creation and you're seeing all these other man-made gods where they're keeping things a secret. Hey, we're going to send a flood and not tell anybody. That's a man-made God. But our God is different. He's saying, I'm going to send a flood, but I'm going to tell one family and I'm going to preserve a remnant through that, through that news that goes to my elect, to my chosen family. Okay, so that's the way God operates, is he's going to keep his people in the know. And that's a sweet grace that God reveals his plans to his people, wouldn't you say? If a flood is coming, if you live in Sodom, which we do. I'm not talking about Greenville, I'm talking about the earth. This is a fallen world. Sodom is a micro picture of where we are now as the people of God. And we're going to talk about the preservation, the role of preservation of the people of God in, in Sodom. But it is a sweet grace that God reveals his plans to his people. The people of God are illuminated, and we are in on what's in store. What God reveals to Abraham here is what God has revealed and does reveal to us in this book. This little conversation that he's having with Abraham here where he's giving him some information is a picture of, of his details of with Sodom, of what's in store, is a picture of what he's given us. Think about the book of Revelation, of what's in store. <laughs> so we're like little mini Abrahams that are getting the story, the rest of the story, right here. We have the rest of the story, and we know what's in store. Now, verses 17 through 19 is kind of where this nectar is. Let's look at this briefly. These verses have everything to do with the character of election. If you've been walking with us for a while, you know that election comes up periodically. Predestination, God foreknowing, um, doctrines of grace, those sort of things are kind of some terms that we use. 
if you're you're new to some of these these this language and you, you don't understand it or even if you may be put off to it I encourage you to know that we're not we don't have an agenda it comes up when it comes up in the word and we deal with it we reckon with it the full counsel when it shows up and this is one of those occasions where it comes up first of all God reveals the story to his elect I just fleshed that out a little bit but I want you to see it in black and white actually in red John 15, 15. Keep your finger in Genesis and look over in John 15, 15. God reveals the story to his chosen people. Okay, here's a passage that illuminates that. He's speaking to his disciples. This is in the final hours before he's nailed to a cross. This is like the last lesson. Okay, before, he, before they go, he goes to the cross. It says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's the character of our God, that he keeps his people in the know. So this picture where he's telling Abraham what's in store for Sodom is a little picture of what he's doing for us through this Bible. It's a picture of what Jesus did for his disciples, telling him everything that he knew that he got from the Father. And that is characteristic of God's people that they are ed- illuminated and educated with something that matters, something that you'll need to know. <laughs> kind of like you're collecting details, this national um, treasure you're collecting facts, trying to sort out this mystery. You know, this is our collection of facts. Now, it's a whole lot more than that. It's actually engagement with the living God. But this is where we get to know what's in store. And it's how we get to discern the rest of the story, how it's unfolding. And the reason that he's revealing this to his people is because it has to do with the greatness and the might of the covenant people. Now, this is an important point. The reason he's revealing this this story of what's in store for Sodom, the reason God reveals what's in store for creation to his people, is because it has to do with the greatness and the might of his covenant people. So here's a condemning thought. Not condemning. A sobering thought. Because it may not be condemning. Here's a sober thought that if we're not great and we're not mighty, it may be because we're not in on the plan. We're not tuned into the plan. I mean, think about that. When people say, man, the church is great and mighty right now. If you're swallowing hard saying, ah, you know, does the world perceive the church as great and mighty? The world will never perceive the church as great and mighty. But as we're looking at it through the lens of the word, and we're saying, okay, let's use the, the lens of the word to determine what greatness and strength are. And if we can look at the church and say, yes, it's there, then that's because we're in on the plan. But if we look at the church and we see faithlessness and we see dabbling, and I'm not talking about crosspoint, I'm just talking about the church in general. And we see dabbling and we see half-heartedness and we see lukewarmness, then you have to go, are you in on the plan? Because those who are in on the plan are going to be great and mighty. Because that's why he's letting you know. So that's why we preach this Bible. (laughs) So we can be in on the plan. 
emails just don't, uh, they, they won't illuminate us to the plan. Funny emails, funny jokes, funny stories. <laughs> While they're funny and entertaining, they won't let me in on the plan. They might pass the time and I might have some chuckles. But when this thing unfolds, when Sodom unfolds, I won't, I won't know anything about it. When the rain starts coming, I won't be on the ark. This book gets me on the ark. You understand the illustration that I'm using there? This greatness and might that comes from knowing the plan. He says, all the earth will be blessed through them. Now, you're going to see this illustrated at the end of the chapter. This is so beautifully illustrated at the end of the chapter. If there's 50 there, will you not destroy Sodom? Okay, if there's 50 righteous there, I won't destroy Sodom. I'm going to make the connection when we get there, but that's just kind of, kind of getting you ready for it. That all the earth will be blessed through the presence of this offspring of Abraham. Okay? And I'll just kind of have that right here, undeveloped, because we're going to come back to that in a minute. Okay? Now, <clears throat> it says God has chosen Abraham. That's what he said right here in this passage there in uh, verse um, 19. For I have chosen Abraham. Him. That's the foundation of this whole thing. If you looked over there in John chapter 15, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read the next verse since I'm already on it right here. John 15, 15 is the one we just read where it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. So God is getting us in on the details. And it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's also the character of our God. He's choosy. We know he doesn't play favorites. <laughs> he doesn't show favoritism. We know that. But we can trust and know that God is an eclectic God. You know what eclectic means? You walk in somebody's house and they've got kind of like they've captured things from all different cultures or all different places in Texas or the states they've got all they've got folk you know art they've got um <laughs> other things that are not folk <laughs> you know they've got this mixture of things and you walk in there and go that well they've picked these things from these different genres of you know music is a good way to look at it you look at somebody's ipod and they've got stuff from all different kind of genre it's eclectic that's the nature of our god he's an eclectic god he's Instead of genres of music, it's genres of people groups. I'm going to have every people group represented in my iPod. If this iPod is, man, I've never imagined I could connect an iPod to heaven. But <laughs> There you go. I'm going to have every people group represented. And that's what, if, if you think that eclectic word is a stretch, that's where elect comes from. And that's also where the word ecclesia comes from, which is the, the Greek word for church. So the thing I realize that may be kind of alarming, maybe kind of a paradigm shift for you. You got to realize that we are the gathering of the elect, who are gathered by an eclectic God. And this is a picture that He chose Abraham. And you read there in in John chapter five, fifteen, verse sixteen. He says, "I chose you. You didn't choose me. <laughs> you think you found me? I found you. I'm the shepherd that finds lost sheep. The lost sheep doesn't find a shepherd. Oh, there you are, shepherd." Let me catch up with you. Don't work that way. <laughs> Lost sheep are just out there about to walk off a cliff. 
And the shepherd snatches him up. Come here. Let me put you over my shoulders. Let me take you to the flock, the ecclesia. That's the way it works. The same God who can make the barren fertile is the same God behind the choosing. And our God's choice has oomph. That's what he's saying. He said, I chose you. Not some chump. You weren't chosen by some chump. I chose you. That sovereign, powerful, able God chose you. And you've been chosen, Abraham, that you may command your children and your household after you to keep my way, living righteously and justly. I hope you're appreciating that it's no small issue that we are so serious about training shepherds and looking shepherds right in the eyeballs to teach our children. Because the future of the church is not some scheme. It's not even a single sermon, as much as I love the thought of that. The future of the church is you, daddies, and single moms. The future of the church is you taking this this seed and sowing it into the hearts of little kids. It's no small issue that we emphasize the teaching and training of our children. He says, I've chosen you, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. You see the connection? You're chosen, not so you won't go to hell. It's not the non-hell thing. You're chosen so that you may perpetuate this story and this righteousness and this justice in the hearts of Isaac and Ishmael. It didn't, won't work, but in Isaac. And then his offspring. That's what we're here for. So that's why we're serious about equipping y'all to teach your children. It's not just a fad. And it's something that uh, the Jews lived on. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. You can keep your finger in Genesis. Let's look at it real briefly. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. It is actually the passage that has, in many ways, shaped our children's ministry. While I feel like our children's ministry is pretty robust, I feel like our... Our kids are getting taught some great things right now. The real meat of our children's ministry is what we're doing right here. And what we do Sunday mornings. Because y'all are being equipped for something. Because listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. And these words that I command you, just imagine being a shepherd, a father, or a functional single, single mom. There's probably not many single moms in this day and age, but I'm sure there were at some point. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them, fathers, diligently to your children. I inserted fathers because that's who it is as you round this thing out. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The Jews lived and breathed by these realities. They are serious about teaching their children. I found that schools didn't even exist until shortly before Christ came. There was no such thing as a school. Because you know what school was? Mommy and Daddy at home. They taught them the ways of the Lord. They taught them how to read and write, if they knew how to read and write. They taught them a skill and a craft, and all that kind of stuff took place at home. Now, there's not... No reason to condemn a school. So if your kids are in school or if you're 
plan on sending your kids to school, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're wicked because you sent your kids to school or are sending them to school. But you've got to realize that the biblical design is that you're the primary teacher. You may have somebody help you with math, but you better own spiritual issues. That's my job. Daddies ought to say, man, that's my job. I've shared this story before. Key, Key and I have talked about this before. I shared this story a long time ago. I heard a guy talking about um, after worship service, he walked out of the sanctuary of his church and there was a family standing there. This little girl, three or four years old, was acting like she wanted to give him a hug. She's standing there with her family. He's like, oh, you want to give your pastor a hug? And this little girl said, oh, no, I want to give you a hug, but you're not my pastor. He's my pastor. And she's pointing at her daddy. <laughs> How about that? That's strong. When fathers and husbands and, and single moms, functionally or functionally single moms, are leading out and saying, I own this. And I'm going Wednesday night not to get my church on, but to get equipped to go nourish my children with something that matters. Because <laughs> that's what the faith is about. I've been chosen so that I can command my children to live in righteousness. That's this picture with Abraham. That I can teach them and train them in the issues of righteousness and justice. That's my job. I can't hire that out. It's my job. If you begin to connect Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights to equipping you for something, then you're on your way to actually doing what's spoken of right here. But if Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights is just getting church on, you won't make that connection. Okay, he says that basically he wants to, um, he says for Abraham, he says, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is, is just yet another picture of journey. Okay, it's not pray a prayer, walk an aisle, get, get a short dip in a cool pool. And I... I want to make sure that anybody, that y'all know that I'm never making little of that. That can be a beginning of a very real genesis of faith. But it also could be just an activity that has nothing to do with the faith. <laughs> what we're talking about, a journey. That may be the beginning of the journey. For another, it may be, I can't tell you the date, place, time, or hour. I just know I'm believing on him. <laughs> That's Christy. She can't tell you the date, place, time, and hour that she prayed this special prayer. But she's just believing on him. I, yeah, <laughs> he's Savior and Lord. He's my Savior and Lord. So that event is not the fullness of the journey. It's a journey, and it's steps, and it involves a dailiness. And this is the picture of it, to keep them, these children, in the way of the Lord. So the way equals path, like a little narrow road, like the book Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan that every Christian should read. <laughs> it's an awesome book. It's written not just in Old English stuff. They have a kind of a current contemporary version of it that is worth reading. Read it to your kids. It's incredible. Pilgrim's Progress. And basically, keeping in the way, the way they do that is to live righteously and to do justice. Now, live righteously. Some things that came to mind for me is three passages. I'll just share with you what they are, and you can jot them down. You can look them up because they all say the same thing. Ephesians 4.1. Colossians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 2.12. All three of them speak of living in a manner worthy of the Lord. So how we live matters to live righteously. 
I'm afraid that sometimes that we can preach grace so hard and guard grace so hard that we don't flesh out that grace has feet and hands. And that grace does. <laughs> you can't add to grace because when you try and add something to grace, it's no longer grace. But you can sure respond to grace. And that's what the picture of the doing and living righteously is. Is that while grace covers us and and adopts us into a family, grace is not licensed to live wrongly. That ethics matter. The way we live and the way we love matters. But this is where I kind of reserve to deal with a couple things from Sunday morning. I've kind of thought through Sunday, and for somebody who's not been in on the conversation with us for the last couple of years, could have the impression that the issue of giving kind of became a, a, you know, we kind of harped on something. Like that, we kind of pulled an issue out of, almost out of the whole story. There's so many other things. There's praying, there's, there's uh, fellowship, there's singing, you know, there's, oh, so, there's reading. There's so many other things that we can encourage people to do. And I think if you look at a typical shepherd's guide over the course of a few weeks, you will see encouragement to pray and study and all these other things. So it wasn't a, let's pull this out of context. This was one facet of this big thing called worship, giving. So to live righteously in, is kind of coupled with that picture of living blamelessly, like you're all there. If there's one facet that has a big old ugly imperfection on it, then we've got to reckon with that. We've got to deal with it. We've got to address it. And we want to do that humbly. We want to do that carefully. You may not feel like it, Sunday was either of those things. I don't know. You know, Jesus was pretty confrontational sometimes. So was Paul. I don't, I don't want to ever take that as license to hurt someone. But sometimes we need something to arrest us, to go, wait a second. I've listened to that for the first time. <laughs> the conversation's been going on for two years, but that just finally hit me square in the eyes. And the reason we're dealing with things like that is because every compartment matters because there's no compartments when you're dealing with righteousness. It would be like saying, man, I got great kids. They obey me in these eight areas, but in these two areas, they say, no, nope, mom and dad, those are off limits. I'm not going to deal, not, not going to obey you in that area, God, but, or mommy and daddy. But notice, mommy and daddy, that I'm obeying you in the other eight areas. So can, can my obedience in these areas just kind of gush on over, on over to the other two? Is that okay, mom, dad? Any of you moms and dads okay with that? <laughs> Disobedience, it's, in the Marine Corps we call it selective obedience to orders. And I was good at it. That's why I know what it looks like, because I, I was good at it. I, okay, these orders I like, but this one, that's not a good idea. That's kind of stupid, matter of fact. I'm not going to obey that one. <laughs> selective obedience to orders is disobedience, period. So while I know it's unfashionable to deal with things like that, man, it has everything to do with living righteously and to live and do justice. I want to know when I, am, when, I, when I am living wrongly. And justice says that Christians want to have those darknesses revealed, even if they're with us. Now, you have to be very careful in that you're not walking around saying, okay, you're doing something wrong. You know, my sense of justice, the God-given sense of justice, says that I'm going to get up in your face and your face and your face. But just know that this was a part of a very long journey and one that has involved many very careful, diplomatic, gentle 
uh, engagements on the issue of giving. And Sunday was where we say, okay, <laughs> justice says that we just can't lie to each other anymore. We've got to live justly and do justice. And we're better off few, being fewer and leaner, but being just and righteous, or pursuing justice and righteous. And that was a caveat on Sunday, too. It was not if you're not giving, lead. It was if you're not giving and you don't aim to grow in that area. <laughs> And I could have said an additional sentence would have been, and you aim to continue lying yearly when we have this membership renewal, then don't be a member anymore. I know that's hard, man. I know it. But it, man, we're called to be those who are living righteously or pursuing righteousness and doing justice. The, um, the Lord spoke about money a lot because money is magnetic and money is explosive and money is volatile. I realized after Sunday, I've had some hard talks with people. I've had some great talks with people, but I've had some hard talks with people. And I realized after Sunday why pastors kind of avoid and tap dance around it. Because it's hard. But hard doesn't mean that you avoid things. You know, if we don't hit the hard things with our kids, we're going to have some little, um, little wicked little cats, you know. Wicked little dudes, dudettes. We've got to hit the hard things. And we do that in love because of what's at stake. The beauty of the bride is at stake. Just some thoughts from Sunday. Now, here's where it's all connected. Remember, he, let's go back and just capture the details. We've got a couple minutes here, and I want to just round this out, and we'll stop on this last little section. It says, I've chosen him. This is one of my guys. This is one of my elect, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, and then there's a so that. You remember, so that's are important. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. In some ways, covenant has conditions. There is a very real conditional aspect to covenant. And it's kind of like this. this. This would kind of help you understand. Like wool is to a sheep. Those who are chosen will walk in this wool of faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. Now, there will be little times where we have patches of wool missing. A big clump falls off. <laughs> but as sheep is to a wool, or as wool is to a sheep, these things will be characteristic of God's people. And this so that is important, so that the Lord may bring about His promise. Walk in faithfulness, command this to your children, uh, righteousness, do justice so that the Lord may bring about his promise. Because if you don't do those things, then the covenant has been fractured and broken. And in many ways, it's kind of a picture of apostasy. Fracture in the, in the covenant relationship where the blessings of the covenant don't apply anymore. There's got to be a union of that, that covenant. Here's some passages to look up just where you'll see more of that. You can write these down. Chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Conditional aspects of covenant. Chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. And then chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. There are consequences to breaking covenant. And there are also blessings to walking in covenant. Very real, tangible blessings. The implications are, let me just kind of share this last thought and we'll shut down. 
The implications are that God makes you a new person, i.e. a covenant partner. God initiates covenant, right? Can we, can we find him? No, he finds us. And he said, I'm going to enter into covenant with you. Okay? He initiates covenant by a work outside of you. For us, what's that work? The finished work of Jesus Christ and grace and faith. Okay, those, those things that are outside of us. Even faith is a gift. So all those things are outside of us. We, he initiates a relationship where we become a covenant partner and we walk and obey in that covenant responding to that work that was outside of us. Not adding to it because you can't add to grace. But you can respond to it. So we walk righteously and do justice, pursue those things in response to the grace that's been extended to us. However, the reality is, is that we can become apostate and step outside of covenant. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? I don't look at salvation like this punctiliar thing anymore. We are being saved. Salvation is a process of being saved. And you begin a journey. You know, it may be a prayer that you remember on a certain day and time. But you begin a very real journey. For Christy, she doesn't know the date, place, and time. But she's on the journey. And if someone steps out of that journey, I'm okay with saying, well, they were never saved in the first place. Because we're looking at it punctiliarly, like a point in time. Boop. It was never really a genuine thing because true saints will persevere to the end. They won't jump off ship. So if you're trying to kind of figure out how to process this, once saved, always saved, I just encourage you to kind of put those quippy sayings aside. That They're not in here. You know, they do kind of do something to kind of characterize their shorthand for where we believe but what's a whole lot better is having a lot of satellites and being able to explain where you stand the salvation is a work it's a journey we are a people <laughs> we are walking in the way and we walk in that way to our very last breath and we leave the salvation thing up to the lord <laughs> trusting that he's going to save his own and that we can't jump in and out of his family that he initiates covenant and as a response of his initiating covenant with us, extending this grace toward us through the work outside of ourselves, that we respond wholeheartedly, unabashedly, unreservedly, all over it, blamelessly, all there. Okay? Some complicated thoughts tonight. Hopefully you have a chance to chew on some of these things. We're going to stop right there, and we'll pick up... Um, next Wednesday night is the Wednesday before mobile worship. So we'll actually do some visiting next Wednesday night. If you've not done that before, I encourage you to do it. It's fun. It's fun. My kids love it. And these families that, you know, we knock on their door, and they see the kids, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's cool. So if you don't have any kids, you can borrow one of mine because it's kind of cool <laughs> having a kid. You know, because it really, I don't know why it is, it just kind of sets them at ease that you're not selling something, you know. And uh, it's really not so official. It's like, hey, man. We're from Cross Point. We're going to be worshiping. And in fact, this next, uh, this last Sunday of the month, we're going to be over at Anshar's Park in a big tent. So we'll be hitting the neighborhoods around Anshar's Park on the Wednesday before, this next Wednesday. So the Wednesday after that, we'll pick up here in verse 22. And we won't have to spend very long there. And we'll just move right on into, into chapter 19. Some heavy stuff tonight, y'all. I know, because it's some heavy stuff to teach. That section in there that was the nectar, I beg y'all to just read on that some, like at bedtime, you know, as you're going off to sleep, read on this. 
Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. That's like an eight-week sermon series. Right there. And we can feast on it anytime we want. That's the beauty. Hopefully, it's, you've gotten a little bit of a taste of it tonight. All right. Now, listen, too. I want to just share with you. If any of y'all are still kind of wrestling with what you heard or how you heard it on Sunday, I'm available to talk with you, or any of the elders are. Um, really, I think the most, most powerful thing of Sunday morning for me was Romans chapter 15, verse 8. The indictment against me that I was a little bit kind of sheepish about, oh, servanthood, not real flashy or sexy. Oh, church may get smaller. It's not a real church growth sermon series, but we'll do it, Lord. And then in Romans 15, 8, I'm finding that God used the servanthood of Christ to show the truthfulness of the gospel. <laughs> and I realized that I was embarrassed and kind of um, sheepish about the marrow of the gospel. I mean, the kernel. Uh, servanthood is the best we got. If somebody's turned off by servanthood, hey, man, it don't get them better than that. You know, it's not flashy or sexy. But it's, man, it is the best we've got. So that was an indictment for me. But there's been a lot of talk about the kind of the pre-sermon, <laughs> pre-sermon portion. And if anybody needs to talk about that, man, I, that's cool. That's cool. I, listen, I promise you, I'm approachable. You won't hurt my feelings if you have thoughts or concerns or questions. And if you know of another member or someone who's visiting with us that's kind of wrestling through that, offer the same to them. I know after I share something like that that there's going to be a few days where we just have to kind of make a, you know, that all the elders go, oh, man, I had a lot of stuff to do this week. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like I'm not going to get to all that stuff I needed to do. But that's okay, you know. We've got to work through challenging things. So let me, let me pray. God, thanks for our time together tonight. We love you so much. We thank you that um, you have initiated covenant. We thankful, we're thankful that you have drawn us into a relationship with you. We, uh, we're thankful that, that um, you're in the business of finding lost sheep. Lord, I pray that we see your grace and your mercy in that. I pray that as a result of that and in response to that, that we will pursue living worthily, um, bearing your name, bringing glory to your name like a salty, bright, aromatic people who are genuine with each other, or shooting straight with each other, even about um, maybe volatile, magnetic issues. And Lord, all of that for your glory. We don't want to do that to be cavalier. We don't want to do any of those things to hurt people. We want to be right and true and faithful. And Lord, we trust that as a result of that, that you will use us for your glory. We pray that you will um, do a sweet work in this community. And if if it's your will and uh, if we can be part of that, we pray that you'll use things like uh, mobile worship, that you'll use things like our workspaces and our conversations that we have over lunch and our relationships and our website and our um, Sunday morning worship times and our Wednesday night Bible study times is all of those things to connect with people that aren't walking with you. Lord, we pray as a result of that that you'll be glorified. Lord, lastly, we were thankful for this sweet privilege of being your slave. And we are so thankful that you have promoted us from slave to friend. 
And uh, we still want to continue to serve you as slaves. And we count it a sweet privilege to walk in that service. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.